forgot to mention it in the last uh, one, but we are now in season two of the podcast. <laughs> Stop <laughs> laughing! <laughs> Keep going. I'm not laughing. Keep going. And um, this is episode 19. Which is kind of, that's a lot of that's episodes. a lot. Especially oh. because they're really freaking long. I feel like I you know. just started yesterday. <laughs> no, it's been like a year. It's been almost a year. Yeah. Um, and uh, before I get going, I want to remember to uh, make sure I know a lot of people just act, listen to the podcast in iTunes, but make sure to visit um, the website for the podcast, which is clearicefullshelves.com slash the podcast. And that way you can get all the archives and find all the posts with links to books we've talked about and other resources for the topics. And also if you want to support the podcast by doing a free Audible trial, that's really great because it helps pay for our hosting and we appreciate that. And I know some folks have done that, so thank you. Um, But we today have some awesome guests. Yay! And um, the first is someone we've had on the podcast before. The lovely Raquel from The Book Barbies, which is a blog we love. Hi, Raquel. Hi. Welcome back, Raquel. And I'm happy to be back. <laughs> and if you don't read uh, Raquel's blog with her friend Sharon, um, you really should. It's thebookbarbies.blogspot.com, correct? Yes. And um, then our next guest is the wonderful, an author we really, 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 really love. Yes. That, um... Kind of, um, in a frightening way. Yeah, Laura may have gone a little bit over the top with her, um, her author stalking. I mean, just, you know. Just because she showed up at my house doesn't mean that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, which is the lovely Sarah Oakler, who's the author of, um, well, Laura's favorite book ever, Bittersweet. Uh-huh. And Fixing Delilah, which seems to be under a lot of people's radar, and I think people should fix that. And, um... Nice book- pun. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and the book of Broken Hearts, and the, I think, pretty well-known 20 Boys Summer. Yes. Um, and coming soon in June, correct, is Hashtag Scandal. Correct, Sarah? You got it. All right. You got okay, it. Good. <laughs> so, welcome, Sarah. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> and, um, I'm gonna hand it over to Laura to introduce, um... See, I said I even put in the notes, I know. Laura, to introduce the topic, because as we're revisiting something that's actually yes. from our very we're first... We're holla back to podcast number, number one. one. Which is actually, interestingly, our last I looked was the most the downloaded podcast. The most popular podcast. one, yeah. Um, so... So, our first podcast, we were talking about diversity in books and YA, a lot about yeah. diversity in YA, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that in depth today, because uh, there's a lot to go over. Yes. <laughs> this is a very broad topic. Well, and it's really since we recorded that podcast, too, it feels like there's been more and more dialogue yes. around this subject with different angles and aspects that I hadn't thought about that um, we didn't even begin to touch on either. So I do think that there's more, there's, there are things happening around this subject. Yeah, and there's a lot to diversity also, I think, you know, not just in terms of race, but also, you know, with uh, LGBTQ, I can't, I don't know if I have that correct. I hope I haven't offended anybody by getting that yeah. not correct, but uh, a lot of those issues also kind of uh, fall under the diversity spectrum, I would say, mm-hmm. so I think it's good to talk about all of those. So, 
And we invited these two lovely ladies on the podcast to talk about this because, aside from that we like them. They're super awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) We're killing it today, Laura. (laughs) Um, uh, The Book of Broken Hearts in particular, um, Sarah, you did a really, I think, a wonderful job of... um, infusing a lot of culture in that book um, in a way that was really special and I really appreciated. Um, And also Sarah has an off-tumbled blog post that she wrote a long time ago about this particular topic. And I still see it coming across my Tumblr every so often, which is fascinating, Sarah. Um, Yeah, I still get a lot of comments on that one. I think it was one of the most popular blog posts on my little blog. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not terribly surprised because it's really good. (laughs) I was actually surprised that um, it didn't, you know, there are so many comments on that post and they were all, you know, very supportive and just people wanting to add to the discussion. um, They reposted that one on the science fiction, science fiction and fantasy writers group. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it right now. But that um, apparently in that community, in that writing community, the topic of diverse fiction has been um, discussed for a long time. And there's just a lot of heated discussion around it. And so there were just a lot of more angry comments, I think, more just, I don't know, less helpful comments on that one. It does seem um, like that is an issue in that because I don't follow yes. that, that community very closely, but even with the sort mm-hmm. of casual interest I have in What's going on in the sci-fi and fantasy world? I hear about the. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, disparate thoughts on that. Yeah, but they're. Yeah. I, I think they're going through a really interesting transition right now between you know kind of an old school, new school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it's causing some strife within that community. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, there's even strife in that community between, you know, men and versus women writers yeah, and yeah. Um, women not getting the support and the attention that they deserve. So, you know, that that's a longstanding issue over there. Mm-hmm. I think young adult fiction in general, the community tends to be a lot more supportive. But at the same time, I feel like there's more of a, I don't want to say it's not a pressure and it's not a responsibility, but because we're writing for teens, I, you know, I take it really seriously just in terms of, you know, making sure that everybody's being written about and written for and, and all of those things more so than I would with, a, if I were writing for a strictly adults. Well, I get what you're saying because it, when you're young and you don't see yourself in any sort of media, like, mm-hmm. I, it, to me that seems like, like a bigger deal than when you're an adult and you can at least, it's easier to go seek things out. It's right. Like, yeah. yeah. When you're, you know, if you're, 15 and you, what you've got or what's on the shelves of your local library, you know, and that's it. That's hard. Not to yourself at all. Right. And, and when you're very articulately. No, I mean, that's, that's, I think the crux of the issue of why it's even important to talk about, because when you're a young person, you're still formulating your ideas of what the world is. And if you're not seeing yourself represented, you know, what kind of a message does that send? That that you're not important, that you're not part of the, of the world. Uh, Raquel, right. I think since you are still actually, t- if we're going to be technical, a young adult, 
<laughs> are, you a, are you a new adult now? Did you? Cry? I think I'm a new adult. I've moved on. A new phase. Congratulations. <laughs> but you're still yes, an but do you have teen, a You're still an actual teen, though, aren't you? Yes, I'm 18. Yeah. So, I mean, how? What is sort of your feeling on that in terms of what you see portrayed? Well, I, I, for starters right now, I live in Houston, so I'm surrounded by every, people from every part of the world, like, yeah. and I go to a Catholic private university, and we have more international students than actual American students. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like I'm surrounded by it, like, 100% of the time, and then when I go online, and when I go through books, and it's, there's such a big lack, and it's so surprising to me, because I'm surrounded by people from all around the world 24-7, and then when I go online or I read books, and it's just, there's such a lack, and even on TV, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's surprising because there's like a there's like a wall between... What you're lo- seeing and what yes. you see in media is not at all the same. Right. At all. And that's, that's a problem. Yeah, because, like, I mean, I think the last census report said that, so that would have been in... What, 2010 Yeah. Okay, so the last census in 2010, about four years ago, uh, they said that this country is 37% uh, minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, with by 2060, they are expecting that number to jump to 56%. Uh, but according to the recent study by the Lee and Lowe mm-hmm. uh, publishers... Uh, the number of books by and for people about color uh, has remained stagnant at about 9 or 10% for the past decade. So that's a huge gap between yes. the reality of the demographics of this country and what we are seeing in media. Then that's a really big problem to me. That's a huge problem. And I think another problem is that um, when we look at diverse fiction and we say, you know, this is, you know, we're writing fiction for people of color, for example. And the phrase people of color, I know itself is problematic, but it's, right. it's the one that we have right now. So, um, the, it, it's important to note to me that the books aren't necessarily for people of color. I mean, they are, but they're, they're for everybody. And I think that's another issue too, is that Caucasian Americans, um, for the most part, could stand to diversify their their bookshelves. And to me, that's another reason why I like to write about diverse characters, because it's important to just kind of expose everybody to that. You know, it's like, these are your neighbors, these are your your kids' classmates, your classmates, people that maybe you see at church, at the grocery store, in your community, whatever. And there's just, like like Raquel said, there's like this wall between the reality and what's being portrayed in, in media that people consume all the time, whether it's television, books, movies, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it seems to me like books about white people are considered to be for everybody. Right, you're right, right. exactly. But if it's a book about, like, I don't, like, someone like me, a Korean-American, then that is considered more to be for those people. Um... I, I don't. I think that's there's, a problem there's a mar- too. There's a like systemic marginalization. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't make sense at all. No, it's stupid. 
There really is no other word <laughs> to describe it. I'm sorry. I, I really wish I had a better way of saying that. But, I mean, as, like, like a white person who lives in, like, the least diverse city. It's, like, the complete opposite of Houston, where I live. Like, even in my context, like, what I see media-wise is not reflective of what, like, when I walk out my door, I see. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's... <laughs> Like, that's really problem. It's stupid. And it's, it's kind of, I, it, it's, I am trying to think of a way to say it that's better, more articulate than that, but. More articulate than stupid? Well, I mean, it's one of those, it trips me up. Like, it actually keeps me, sometimes I'm just like, what is happening here where these fictional characters live in a world where everyone is the same as them? Yeah. Because that is not my own experience. And I think, I think that's not many people's experience at this point. But it's good that it trips you up, though, because I think another issue is that for for a lot of people, it doesn't trip them up. Right. And that's that's a problem. They see it on TV or in books or whatever, and think like, "Yeah, this is this is me. This is my life. This is what I want. And this is what I want to see." Insidious because it it like normalizes that point of yes. view. Yes. And that's problematic as well because. Right. Uh, that I mean that I mean when you talk about like sort of cultural understanding and understanding the world you live in and you think that that is normal, that's not good for the world. Right. I mean, and I am I'm 33, and you know I was right. I mean, young adult fiction has exploded. Yeah. Like it. I mean, it. There was like not really young adult fiction when I was growing up. You no. know, I didn't really have that many options as far as those books to read, but, you know, I've kind of grown up, and I'm at this point where even me, as somebody who's not white, when I read a book, I picture the character as white, because that's something that's so ingrained in me, is that, like, that's, like, the default in our media all the time, that even me, somebody as a minority, like, automatically defaults to that picture in my it's head. It's insidious. It's, it's yeah, really... I think I think that's a really good point. The de- the default has become the character is white, unless it's stated otherwise. Right. Um, and I just don't think that is a true reflection of our world and our country, if you're talking about just books that take place in the United States. Like, I don't think that's an accurate reflection at all. Uh, it's, it's definitely not an accurate description at all. Because if you take me for example, I've never been like in a class where there were, it was only white people. Because if you just put me in the class, you already have a minor, per, a minority person there. But there's always been so many different people in my classes or wherever I go. That it's it's never been white like it's never been default. Yeah. And maybe because I do live in a diverse place. I mean, I live in a very, in a city where there's a lot of different people. But, I mean, it, even if it's not Houston, I think any anywhere in the United States, there's going to be diversity. Anywhere. But then, you know, back to Laura's point with the way, when we, especially if we look at fiction for teens, mm-hmm. so very often if it's um, fiction for teens that has... A minority character or um, gay character or it's it's particularly if they're the point the main point of view but even when there's you know secondary characters but 
you know, dollars to donuts, there's a huge, there's a very big chance that will be ultimately an issue-based book, you know, of some sort of, and there's not, I think those are important books. I really do think those are important stories, and I think it's important to have those, so I'm not dogging on the existence of issue-based books, but it sometimes feels like being, you know, not this sort of the default person means that you have an issue you need to overcome. Right. And that's... Which I don't really think that's true. No! <laughs> I think it's not in my Sorry. experience. Not that I haven't had issues to overcome, but... Yeah, it, I don't really feel like... I feel like I relate more to the mainstream characters, I guess is what I would call them, as opposed to... The issue book characters, right? Like, what I remember, we talked about like the Lucy variations. Like, you found mm-hmm. that to be like a like a story you found very relatable. Yeah, and that I mean, you know, and that's about a you know, you know, a really rich, a white really girl. privileged white girl <laughs> who plays piano. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, but that's um, you know, but just her what she was dealing with was more relatable than you know some of the things you might come across. Well, I think, you know, when you, when you look at a person, you know, let's say, well, I mean, there's so much that makes up that person. It's like, maybe you can't relate to one certain issue because, you know, maybe you haven't faced that particular discrimination or, you know, there's just so much to it. There's, there's sexuality and gender identification issues. There's, there's class and privilege issues. There's education. There's, I mean, it just goes on and on. So the issue books, while, while they're important, they don't, they don't reach out to everybody. And it's not, it's not enough. It's not enough. And also it implies, like you said, that, you know, that the person of color will have those issues that that it's, it's kind of like, that's their identity. That's the book that they need to read. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like this chicken or the egg thing. It's, it's pub, the publishing industry, it's booksellers, it's marketing, it's authors, it's all of us. Um, but we have to start somewhere, right? Yeah. And I think that like pigeonholing books about, you know, I don't know, minority characters or whatever, um, as issue books is just another way of like othering them and making them yeah. seem like they are separate, Outside the which mainstream. is like not true in real life. <laughs> well, and certainly not something we aspire to. Right. Hopefully. So Laura, you had made it, we made a fancy schmancy outline and you had made a note about the idea of multi, this was yours, right? Your note? Yeah. Yeah. Multicultural versus, um, colorblind. And I think that's also a really important observation as well. Yeah, I think, I have been seeing a lot where people are kind of advocating for this attitude of having a colorblind attitude towards books and reading. And Raquel, you and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, and I think both of us have a lot of problems with that, so I don't know if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Well, the first thing when I, when I, the color, um, people of color came out. Well, well, people of color, first of all, uh, I was like, okay, yay, people of color, more diversity. But then I realized people of color, that, that doesn't, that doesn't mean everybody. Just because I have different skin color doesn't mean my experiences are going to be different than a white person. And just because I have white skin doesn't mean my experiences are going to be just like white, like the other white people. It's just, it's not, it's, it's a limited term. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't like it at all. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm not really a terribly big fan of that either, so. You know, and I see a lot of um, people saying we should be colorblind when we approach books, and I don't see that helping increase diversity. At all. I mean, I, I think some people who are people of color, and I'm making air quotes right now, but you can't see me, um, they want, they do want to be, they want, they do want to be seen as colorblind, which is fine, because that's, I mean, they might have grown up in a culture where, different culture, so they do want, they do want to be seen as colorblind. But then other people, like me, I do live in the U.S., I've spent half of my life here, but I'm still very attached to my Saudi Arabian culture, it's still, I mean, like, I am 90% Saudi Arabian and maybe 10%. Like, not even 10%. I'm, I'm still very much the Saudi Arabian person. And, I've like, my family kind of rejects the culture here. I mean, we do stuff, but overall, it's... I don't want to be seen as... I don't want to see... I don't want people to see me as colorblind because that's not fitting to the person that I am at all. I mean, people are just going to, like... It's not, it doesn't work out that way. Well, it almost... I- sort of sounds like what you're saying is something that I actually quite articulately is something I kind of have mushing around in my head is when you want the sort of the idea of colorblindness, in a sense, it's also stripping away people's identity. Exactly. That's really, like, personal identity is really important. Like, however you may identify, like, that's such a core part of, and frankly, it's kind of makes for, if you're talking about, like, you know, reading or television, it makes for boring people. To, if they if you take away a huge part of their identity, that's not I don't necessarily right. want to read about that yeah. uninteresting. Well, and there's like a really good article um, that I read in Psychology Today, and it talks about this, and it basically says it explains that, it sums it up yeah, perfectly. Like colorblind is in a way it's another form of racism, and it is. It really is. There's no other um, way to say it because it's. A way for people to not acknowledge the systemic injustices that people of color have had to go through in this country, um, because it's a, they can just be like, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't see race, I'm colorblind. You know, so I, you know, so I can ignore all of these things. The yeah, that's that such a cop out. Races are your problems because I don't see that because I'm colorblind. I'm above all that, and it's just a way to excuse not thinking about that, right? Stuff. Yeah, you know? and it's and it's a way it's to realistic. make it more. I think yeah, that and people do think about it, and I think people do notice it, and I don't, I don't really think that people are truly colorblind in this world. Yeah, and I think, like Sarah said, it it takes away part of a person's identity when you want to look at somebody as a colorblind person. Right. And it just it's it's an excuse to kind of make it more comfortable for white people. Exactly. Which I, you know, that's the root of a lot of the systemic racism in this country, and that's not you know, it's not fair, and it's not the way that that I would. I don't know. I think it's, it it's started. I think it started from um, maybe a genuine place, yeah. as in people don't want to discriminate, so they want to be colorblind to so against the mis- discrimination. But then it it has, it has turned into something else. Well, it right. has its roots in like in 1960s activism. Mm-hmm. Why I know this? <laughs> this is like one of the um, where 
in the civil rights movement and um, white allies in the civil rights movement. And um, there was a lot of, that was, that's where it really came out. Because my mom and I, actually I know why it is, my mom and I have had extensive discussions about this. Like, because it's something that she has really rooted in her mind as like something, and I think that it's a was a functional term at a certain point in time that has taken on a meaning and a life that wasn't that is no longer appropriate or relevant for the way we think. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, she, my mom talks because my mom's in her sixties, and she said, you know, like when we said like like I'm colorblind, it meant like it was it meant that you you weren't like a racist. Like that was the right. the sort of Which that isn't was a bad thing, right? Obviously. And that was like as that, but that was as far as sort of the conversation had gotten at that point. And yet, that terminology and that sort of mindset has has veered. It's gone. <laughs> it's, it's 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 sort of stuck, um, which is sort of an interesting. I mean, if you're just in like sort of cultural anthropology of language and all that nerdy stuff, it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because I think the word colorblind has this association of fairness of, you know, what's fair and equally distributed and that sort of thing. And it's, it's kind of like the same argument that I've heard against affirmative action and programs like that. And as a reader, you know, a lot of people want to be colorblind readers, meaning they don't want to know about the author or the author's cultural background. They just want a good book, um, which I see on the surface. But the fact is in this world, it, you know, it's not fair. There, there aren't a lot of authors of color being promoted, being actively um, placed in prominent places in, book sh- in bookstores. And so we can't really afford to just approach this with a, you know, it's fair. Everybody's fair. Everybody has the same treatment. You know, that because, the, there is, because in reality, there is no true. fairness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we Maybe ha- in a world like we where everything's fair. Kind of, right. Yeah. And so until that happens, which, you know, um, maybe I'm a little cynical, but I don't think that's going to happen in this country anytime soon, then we do have to make the efforts to support other, you know, diverse fiction, diverse nonfiction, diverse media in general. And that, and for me, that includes, um, you know, authors of color, authors of differing abilities, differing gender identifications and sexuality, um, as well as characters with, with those traits. Right. And so I think a big thing that kind of needs to happen is for people to kind of embrace the term multicultural as opposed to colorblind, because multicultural means that you respect the diversity of the people around you, and you respect that where they come from and their culture, even though it might not be just like the one that you were raised in. And I think that's something that is going to be extremely important as our country continues to become more diverse. So, one of the things that we wanted to talk, we haven't even started talking about, like, you know, so... Books and stuff? Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) This is a big topic. It is, it is, it's a huge topic. And um, one of the things that uh, we had wanted to ask you, Sarah, in particular, is, you know, if... As an author, and you don't have to have all the answers because you're just one person. So I'm just. Thank God. <laughs> but, you know, I was like how, totally getting nervous here. Like, okay. um, no, but like for you, um, you know, what do you do to try to get it right? You know, for you in a way that feels like you've written a character that represents a culture that's not the same as your own, or um, you know that you know you've you've represented the world around you in a way that feels. Right. 
Well, I think, I mean, it stems from, you know, I guess I approach, you know, in my first two books, the, the, all, all of the characters were pretty much white. I was writing from my own perspective and, and wasn't thinking about diversity at that time in a, in a way that, you know, that I could actually, it, it didn't occur to me, frankly, that I could actually write about different cultures and things like that um, when I was first starting out, which I think, you know, a lot of people are, are, are writing from their own perspective initially. Uh, yeah, I think that's a normal thing. Um, but there's always a research component for me. So for example, with my first book, 20 Boys Summer, um, even though I related to a lot of, some, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of the upbringing of the characters. Um, I was writing about a girl whose, whose boyfriend died and, and another girl whose brother died suddenly. And I haven't had that experience. So it's just, it's, it's research for one thing, but it's also, um, you know, you, you have to start out from the point of view of what is the core human thing that you're writing about? You know, everybody is, so for, for example, it's 20 boy summer, which again, not a diverse book, but, Everybody has experienced some kind of loss and heartbreak, whether it was something really tragic like a death or a divorce um, or something maybe not as tragic, but still heartbreaking, like moving away from your best friend or, you know, things like that. So you, you start with the, the core human emotion. So, for example, with the book of Broken Hearts, which is about a family who had emigrated from Argentina and also there's a, a Puerto Rican character, a Puerto Rican family. Um, I didn't start writing about them thinking strictly about like, okay, how can I portray these um, Latina cultures? It was more like, okay, what's the human thing that I'm writing about, first of all? And in that story, it was about the, the father of the main characters suffering from early onset Alzheimer's and what's that, what that is doing to the family. But so that I start from there and then I research the specifics of the culture that I wanted to represent, which it, it's so all encompassing. I mean, it's foods, it's speech patterns. And because in that family, the, the parents were originally from Argentina. So they were bilingual and had raised the children bilingual. So there's accents to think about and, um, you know, family ties to the old country and the different kinds of food that they eat. And, and, um, even, sort of like the, the culture around eating and what that means. And there's just a lot of things to consider, but, you know, I just think about my own life and think about, okay, what's my family like at mealtime? What do we eat? What do we talk about? And then kind of extrapolate from there. Um, in that case, I was really lucky because my in-laws are from Argentina. So I based a lot of it on my experience with them and, and was, I was able to talk to my mother-in-law and my father-in-law and even my husband just about, some of the cultural aspects that I wanted to be sure to quote, get it right. But I, I read an interesting article on Buzzfeed called 12 fundamentals of writing the other and the others in quotes, mm -hmm. how to respectfully write from the perspective of characters that you aren't. And I thought it was really interesting. One of the things that the author said was that, um, he was quoting Juno Diaz. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Juno Diaz. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, who said the baseline is you suck. And he was talking about gender in that instance, um, oh, yeah. being, um, yeah. So I think like he, so he said, the author of the article said, understand you suck, then try to suck less and move forward. <laughs> and I think you can't let the fear of not getting it right, stop you from trying. Um, but, but it's very important to do the research and, really with the internet, there's no excuse to not be able to, 
find the research and find people who are willing to talk to you and willing to look at your manuscript and say, yeah, like this, this is reflective of my experience or yeah, this is actually not really, this is going to be totally racist. (laughs) You need to revisit that. That was a really long answer, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't remember, Laura, if you were at that panel that Cindy Pawn and Melinda no. were, um, no, you were with me. Um, it's like Cindy Pawn talked about that. I think I hope it was Cindy Pawn. I'm like ninety five percent sure it was. She talked about um, how important like little details, like what would this person be eating in their home, like mm-hmm. what would like you know like uh, things like, like what are you know the the sort of smells in a house, like what are the right. you know what are sort of the the things that are the everyday things that are important to someone's culture right. that are, you know, if you think about, like, in your home, what you have, like, what you have, I'm really paraphrasing her. She talked about it really wonderfully. Um, you know, everyone has in their home and in their life, like, things that are important to them culturally. And, like, thinking about those things are really, really critical right. in portraying people in a way that, that feels authentic. Right. Like she and, talked about food a lot. Yeah, it was yeah. actually and quite that's a fascinating. Point, though, like in the book "Burn for Burn" by that's co-written by Shavon Vivian and Jenny Han, and uh, Jenny Han is of Korean descent, um, as am I. And there is a tiny little detail in there that tells me so much about one of her characters. I think it's Lilia, and somebody is like why are there two refrigerators in her house? And somebody else is like, I think the second refrigerator is for Korean food. And I was like, that is the most accurate detail about a Korean American character I've ever seen. Literally. Because (laughs) every Korean American family I know has two refrigerators. One for all the stinky fermented Korean stuff and one for like their everyday stuff. Like, my mom would go to the Korean store, like, once a month because it was, like, an hour away where I grew up, and she would buy, like, all this stuff that would last for real long, and that would go in the stinky Korean food refrigerator, like, the kimchi and the pickled stuff and the fish and all that stuff, and then, like, our, like, milk and eggs and the boring stuff would go into our other refrigerator. <laughs> Well, that's the kind of that's exactly the kind of detail that you that you as an author could potentially miss if you don't if you aren't willing to put yourself out there and talk to Korean Americans for for instance if right. you're not you know if you haven't grown up with that culture. Yeah, and I think so, a lot of people. I think a lot of readers think that food is insignificant, or they they always say that the author focuses on food and nothing else. Like they miss a lot of stuff, but food is a really, really, really important detail culture. to culture mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 a very big detail and i think it it, it tells it like laura says it, one little detail will tell you so much of where a person where where a person might have been where they're from or where they might have been raised or something yeah, like I that say, i mean i think i actually think food is a really Im- i mean it, i mean even if you look at i'm like i seriously culturally speaking i'm the world's most boring person <laughs> i'm really gonna put that out there <laughs> You don't have a stinky fridge in your in your kitchen. But like even like if you look at what's in my fridge, like it tells a story of like where I lived and like uh, it's there's so yeah. much to you know because I have like a big jar. I think I do a big jar of red chili in my fridge. 
which is like not something you see a lot of people who like grew up in rural Oregon having in their fridge is like traditional New Mexican red chili sauce. But like I always have that in my house because I lived in New Mexico and like that's important. Like that's an, like and you don't even think about how you adopt things into your culture, mm-hmm. like your sort of personal culture. So well, and just and think about food. There, but like those sorts of things are really important. Like they're really really important. Right. And it's also something that, again, it's that human element we all share. Everybody eats food, right? So, yes, you know, you need food to live. And, but then, so of course there's going to be cultural, you know, components to that. I mean, think about all of the different ways that food comes into culture. It comes into death and mourning. It comes into celebrations and birth and weddings. It comes into day-to-day stuff. It's like family discussions are hashed out over food or, you know, people who eat alone, that's a whole other thing. So it's, it's like, it's a really important thing. And I think that's, it's one of the things that unifies us. And it's something that as a white author, it's, it doesn't have to be this big, scary thing to approach writing a character who's, who, you know, from a different cultural background than I am. Um, it's just important to try and to, to just, again, just do the research. But there's always that, that human connecting those, those threads. Like, we, we really are more similar than we are different. And that's not to be colorblind and take away the personal, unique identities. But it's true that there's this baseline of things that we all connect on. Another, an interesting thing I read, I don't know if you guys have read that, Vicki Essex wrote a great post for, um, I think it's like Romance University, mm-hmm. like that website. Yeah, I think you it was right. a real, I sent it to you, Laura, because yeah, it yeah. was really That was she, a really interesting one. It was really interesting, and I liked that she also laid it out very clearly, like, here are some things you, you, you should think about, and one of them that she pointed out was like, what are the generational relationships in this character's family, and like, how, like, how do those generational relationships work and where is conflict maybe from that and you know that there's a lot of things that you can mine in terms of the way you develop a character related to these experiences and they're not all that different than if you're writing a character who's like yourself and you would think about okay what is this person's relationship with their parents and what are the conflicts between you know right. one generation and another and the expectations and all of that kind of stuff and she, I'll make sure I link to that particular post when I put the podcast up because it was really I thought I felt like she wrote that in a way that was made it not that type of research, not scary. Not scary, yeah. Yeah. That was like, oh, I can get my head around that. Like, I, those are all yeah. things that I get in life, right. you know. You know, and just the research component of it, it's not, I don't really feel like it's any different than if you are writing historical fiction and you need to write from the point of view of somebody who... Like, Jennifer Donnelly wrote A Northern Light, and that takes place in a, a rural community in upstate New York in, what, like the 1910 or so. Or, or the early 1900s or something like that. And to make the authenticity of the girl, Maddie, and her experiences come through, I'm assuming that she had to do a lot of research. You know, yeah. like, that, like how would this person live People's life? lives were yeah. a lot different back then. Like, I mean, I don't know, like, culturally, because we have come so far as, in terms of technology and, you know, just different things. Like, my culture is totally different from this girl, even though we were both raised in New York State in small town areas. You know yeah. what I mean? So, it's... 
If you look at it from that standpoint, I feel like it shouldn't be that scary for people. Like, I think the difference is that it, it, the reason that it's that it can be scary is that with the historical example, people who live during that time period are no longer alive. Right. Whereas, you know, so if you if you you know if you get it wrong, it's not you know it's 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 still important to get it right, but it's not it doesn't have the same implications as if you are writing from a, cult, a perspective of a culture that you know that that is alive and thriving today, and you are putting stereotypes out there that has just a much bigger impact, a negative impact. Right. Um, so it is a little scary, honestly, but it's, it's not an excuse to not, to not try. And I think another way to do that research is to read and support authors who are writing about, and also who have been raised in that culture that you're writing about. Right. And, you know, it's much easier because you could find even more stuff right now if you're doing a dive, a book with a different about a different culture than you know having to research about a book written a hundred years ago and finding information. Right. Right. And I think also one of the things, and again, this is I actually read that post by Vicky Essex the other day um, that she talked about was avoiding sort of using shorthand that is. Um, ultimately reinforcing stereotypes and how critical that is mm-hmm. um, in, like, the way you describe people physically and um, sort of creating characters that are based on your own assumptions um, can be quite problematic as well. So, because I, I just read a book that I quite liked, and it, but I got really irked because an Asian character was described, physically described straight out of, like, it just pissed me off. This is your did, he, did the character have almond-shaped oh, eyes? Yes, he did. And it's just, I'm like, no, like, and he was a really interesting character, and like, that, but it was like, that was the first thing that you learned about him. And it's like, well, you know, again, like the, the, the sort of, I don't like to call people names, but it's lazy. It is lazy. Yeah. It, it's sort of like, it's sort of like a first draft problem that you should throw out and revise later before yeah. anyone else reads it. Yeah. So. You know what? Can we just talk about the food, the whole using food as descriptors <laughs> for people of color? Because I have a problem with that too. It's, it just seems like that is sort of the default, like whether it's almond shaped eyes or mocha latte colored skin. Oh, I forgot or, about the mocha skin. You know, <laughs> oh. I, okay, I get it, but it's, it's like, you don't, you don't, see white people being described as, you know, vanilla ice cream colored skin <laughs> or you, know, you might see like sometimes. peaches. Cream. Oh. Yeah, pasty. <laughs> but pasty is an actual, you know, pasty is a descriptor that could yeah. be, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a pasty person, so I'm okay with that one. But <laughs> it's just, um, the food thing is like, uh, I, it's for me, it, there's, it's strange. It's, it's still like a form of othering and sort of fetishize, fe- fetish, fetishizing. I can't say that word. Um, describing people with food like that and it's just it's so overdone like there has to be another way to describe almond shaped eyes i'm sorry oh. as a person with almond shaped eyes i agree <laughs> <laughs> there should be like some kind of like something built into like microsoft word or scrivener right? or something yeah like, like when someone writes function. it like an alert comes up and says no no, a little no. assistant. He's like, it appears that you're trying to write about a diverse character from your own background. Yeah, please. And I see that you have used almond-shaped eyes. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. 
There's got to be. I mean, it's just, it's so, and I see it all the time. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, no, you pointed it out that it was used a lot. I, in some blog posts, you like, I see that, and, and now I see it all the time. Oh, so this is how it's my fault? Yes. <laughs> this is how it's your fault. <laughs> but I'm glad I see it because it's, I think it's important to actually note it and, I think not seeing that is problematic too. It's like part I, of the problem. Yeah, like yeah. I should see that. Like that's a that's not good. That I I didn't, you know, I would I guess sort of skip over it or not even register it, and it's it's a problem. So now, but I see it so much now that it's it's, it's hard of, not to see it once you start seeing it. And it gets all it gets overwhelming and a bit depressing actually. Yeah. Um, well, again, I think some of it does come as particularly with describing skin color, it does come back to that sort of um, desire to be fair and to be colorblind and not to be racist. So people will do everything that we can to not say black skin or brown skin because for some reason that feels racist. You know what I mean? So be like, oh, chocolate skin or coffee latte skin, caramel skin. But, you know, you kind of have to push through some of that fear. Sometimes it's enough to just say brown skin. You know, you're not... You're not like how, how often in life when you're walking down the street and you see someone, does your brain like catalog every little detail, right? Yeah. What shade of latte is that one? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like that. Yeah. One thing. Uh, well, there's like a couple other things as far as like you know things that I feel like sometimes I see authors do. I mean, obviously, I have no way of proving this without like talking to the author directly, but <laughs> and that would be kind of awkward. But yeah, but like sometimes I feel like it's kind of obvious, but. Um, sometimes I feel like writers are so afraid about not stereotyping their characters if they're trying to write a diverse character that they go in the complete opposite direction. They're just like, what is the stereotype? Mm. Okay, we're going to make this character not that. And I don't necessarily think that's really the right way to go either. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I I don't think the opposite makes means that you're being accurate either uh, right so that's something that I think people need to be careful of like and I, I totally appreciate the fact that they don't want to just make their character mm-hmm. stereotypical but at the same time like you I mean honestly a... like in some ways like I think there are certain ways that I fit into certain Korean-American stereotypes, I guess, you know, which is, and I don't mean that to say that I think of myself as a stereotype, but, um, you know, it very one-dimensional, I guess, I, is what I yeah. want to say. And you I need to go beyond the one dimension the of opp- it. If you're going in yeah. the opposite direction, you're still having the problem of the singular dimension. Right. It, yes. It, and in a sense, it's sort of... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not a, a photo negative of something problematic doesn't make it less. It problematic. doesn't make it. Yeah, like so, like you still you still need to be more nuanced than just doing the opposite of the stereotype because that's not really helpful either. <laughs> and I think it has to do with power too. If you're writing something that's a stereotype, but you're doing it in a way to subvert, uh, you know, a person, that's very different than than writing a stereotype that might actually be true. If that right. makes sense, right, right, exactly. So I think you have to look at that too. It's 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 not so black and white. I remembered what the thing was that I was thinking, and it wasn't oh. actually that interesting. Oh, so you don't want <laughs> to but my, no, my other my other um, 
one of my big sort of it's like a almost like a trigger for me is um when and it's it tends to be female characters um are described as um who are not white are described as exotic which is ah, always yeah. exotic yeah and um it's really like that because there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in that word i feel right. like really the like colonization and like mm-hmm. colonization of women's bodies you know and a lot of stuff related to like it exoticism and i see it so much and i yeah, almost that's wonder, a word that really rankles me as an asian woman especially and because it, i feel like it's one that people use uh to describe asian women a lot when they have a very particular stereotype of an yes. Asian woman in mind, and it's really troublesome to me. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's one, and I, it's strange because I've come across it quite a bit recently, and I don't know if maybe people don't even, I, you know, I because I have this weird, you know, academic background, so it's like a, that word is one that like like I personally like dissected and studied mm-hmm. because I'm a nerd and. Um, but I wonder if there's almost not an awareness around, because I see it so often, and I don't, I almost feel like there's not an understanding of the, the troubling nature of the context of using that way to, that word to describe people. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. that word is bothersome for me in particular, that one, um, oriental, I don't like that one, please don't use it, and, um... I think oh, that like, one is finally fading out yeah, of favor. I do still come across that one, issue. but yes, Geisha yeah, girl, I come across that a lot. Who's yeah? And I know there for I I know which book you're talking about with yeah. that particular term. Um, yeah, it's it's in it's yeah. Oh yeah, yeah those three words kind of trigger anger in me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the term exotic tells you about the author because I recently read a book that described a Moroccan girl as exotic mm-hmm. and I'm from the Middle East, so a Moroccan is like my neighbor. So yeah. <laughs> Moroccan is not exotic. So I was like, huh, <laughs> we have different definitions of exotic. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's actually, it's a good point too because it does really tell you what the point of view of the person who's written that word, like because it also is a, it's such a relative, like, there's a lot of, there's a relativeness to it as right. well. Um, and that's, again, putting people in a, it's. But it's a, it's a way of othering. It is. Also, yes. that is problematic to me. And I, I feel like it's, it's not just othering, it's, it's almost making people an object. Yeah. And that's yeah. something that is really, um, really troubling. Um, and almost like an object for sort of this other group's gaze. Like, there's a very, very disturbing connotation to that particular word. Well, and just think about historically the atrocities that have been committed simply by people, you know, othering to that extent and then Mm -hmm. looking, you know, turning a blind eye on something because they're looking at a group of people as objects and not as human. And that's why it's such an important issue and, and just that we keep talking about it um, no matter how difficult the conversation might be. Right. And, and you know, it's a tough conversation, I think. What's that? I think it is a tough conversation. I think it is too. I think it are is tough. Blurred lines that are difficult 
um, for people? Well, and I think one of the most difficult things for me as a, you know, as a white author talking about this is that, you know, it's really important to me for a lot of reasons to, to write and talk about diverse characters, but at the same time, I don't ever want to overshadow or not support an author of color or an author of differing ability or an author of different sexuality or gender identification um, in a way that, that I'm championing, championing my own work above theirs, if that makes sense. Um, It's just that for me, the fact, and I know that a lot of criticism has come to white authors because of that, but to me, it's just the fact that right now, white authors, at least in the YA market, which is what I write in, um, we make up the majority of published authors and that does need to change. And one way to help make that change is to actively purchase and support authors of color. But in the meantime, another important thing is that, you know, I don't want to not write about other people. Like I have this platform, I'm published, I have an ability to, to put the work out there. And it's important to me that, that teens, you know, of all different cultural backgrounds and and different um, sexualities and abilities can see themselves represented. So it's kind of that fine line between wanting to be supportive, wanting to be an ally, wanting to keep this conversation going, but also stepping back when it's time to step back and, and just be supportive. And that's a real, it's tough. You know, and I don't, you know, I don't think there's any, I think it's good that like people do want to write diverse characters and, you know, go outside of their range. It's like, I also think it's important that like, if, if I were to just decide to write a book that somebody shouldn't be like, well, Laura, you should just write Korean American characters. And I'm like, but what if I don't want to? Like, just because I'm Korean American, I should just write Korean American characters. Like, I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that the expectation that you should only write from that one perspective, I mean, A, I think that's ridiculous because the whole point of being a writer is that you want to explore other perspectives, at least that's what I thought. Maybe I'm wrong. No, Laura, (laughs) we're all looking for the fame and the money, don't you know? (laughs) Such a glamorous life. Yeah, but I think it's wrong to, like, I think to say that white authors should not write from these other perspectives means that you think that the people of color should only write from that perspective, and I don't think that either of those are correct. That's a good point, because there is another side of that coin, too, that I I actually hadn't considered, and that's... And I feel like that, I mean, I feel like I've read a lot of blog posts from people who are of color who have said that there have been times when they felt pressured to write from only their perspective. You know, you know, and I, I just don't agree with pressuring somebody in that way. Right. It's, it's like, I think, um, there was the, the, the blog post that I wrote that you mentioned earlier was actually a response to an article that was posted in the Atlantic about the problem of diversity with YA fiction. And that article had mm-hmm. quoted, um, I, I'm pretty sure it was Co Booth, um, another YA author. Yeah. And she was talking about that, just that, you know, that a lot of times there is this pressure that you represent the issues of your people sort of thing in fiction, that, you know, you have this responsibility that, you know, if you're an African-American author, you need to be writing about discrimination and slavery and the, and the you know, ongoing impacts of that. If you're a gay author, you need to write about coming out and how hard that is. And like you said, Laura, that's really problematic too. Um, I was teaching a writing class like maybe two years ago. And one of my students was of Mexican American descent and she was writing, um, 
an, an urban fantasy with a lot of different, I think the main character was Mexican, but the story was not about anything that had to do with, you know, specifically Mexican heritage or immigration issues or any of the things that, you know, would be kind of pigeonholed as Mexican American issues. And in her previous writing group, she had gotten so much crap for that. Like people were mad at her. They, they wanted to know like, well, you know, wh- is, where does her family live? Are they immigrants? Are they illegal? Are they this and that? And she's like, well, no, they just live in America. I mean, she's going to be fighting demons and that's the story I want to write. Well, you, you know, you're doing a disservice to your people. And, and she's like, but I just want to write this fantasy story. Why can't I just write it? And I just thought that was so interesting that she, you know, had that experience. Like she just wanted to write a fantasy story. Well, um, and it's interesting also because if that character she'd been writing was white, people wouldn't have been asking her, like, you know, about the family's immigration status and, right. you know, right. it, it would have just been an urban fantasy story. And that's, mm-hmm. again, it's that, try, yeah. it's sticky. It's really sticky, sticky. yeah. It um, ties into yeah. reader expectations, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I read a book recently. It wasn't a, a YA fiction story, but it was it was a memoir. But it covered a lot of the author's teen years. It's called American Gypsy by Oksana Marafioti. I've heard that's and a really interesting book. It was it was really interesting, and um, I've been just drawn to read more about the the Roma culture um, because of that book. And but what I thought was really interesting was so her family emigrated to the, to the United States I think in 1989 or 1990 from Russia, and they she had grown up like with sort of the traveling gypsy lifestyle that that a lot of people think of when they hear the word gypsy. Um, so it was just about her coming to America and dealing with a lot of discrimination and expectations about that and sort of transitioning into this American life and, and that kind of thing. And it was just, fa- it was really a really great book I felt. But one of the reviews that I read was the person was disappointed because the, and this is what she said. She said, the, I thought the book would be more gypsy. It wasn't gypsy enough. And I thought, well, you know, it was obvious she she was expecting this story about fortune tellers and tarot cards and gypsy curses and all of the stereotypes that go along with that. And it, it, it like it wasn't enough for her just to hear this woman's experience growing up from, you know, from a completely different culture um, into the U.S. And I thought that's part of the problem right there. Yeah. No, I think that's a really interesting point because I feel like I am often othered in two different ways. Uh, first of all, like, by people, like, no offense, guys, but a lot of times <laughs> by white people. <laughs> but it We can are be, pretty it, offensive. It's not necessarily white people. It can be people, but generally it has been. Um, but when they look at me, they assume that I am not American, mm-hmm. that I must be from another country. Because I am of Korean descent. And they don't understand why I don't have an accent. And why I don't have a Korean last name. Like, it doesn't make sense to them. Like, it doesn't register on their radar that I was born here, raised here. And that I, like, that I like football. And that, you know, I like McDonald's french fries. Like, it, it doesn't make sense I didn't know about the french fry thing, yes. Laura. <laughs> um, you know, but then I'm also othered in a way... Like, so I'm not, like, different enough to those people. Like, it's weird to them that I reflect them in some ways. 
that you share these commonalities, yes. like the football and the French yeah. fries, and and then like you're not quote exotic. Yeah, exactly. I think this is yeah. And then, Do you have then I meet Korean people who are surprised that I am not Korean enough. Like I am too American for these people. Like I, my parents spoke English to me growing up. Um, like I am not bilingual. I know like three words in Korean, and that is how they chose to raise me. And I get a lot of judgment from the Korean community for that. Like, when they try to talk to me in Korean and I can't understand them and I can't communicate with them in that way, and that's a big problem for them. Like, they think that I am, like, some sort of traitor to my Korean heritage. I think that makes sense because even if if, if you read some reviews of uh, diverse books and there's always that one person saying this book was not Latino enough or this book wasn't Filipino enough, and which might be true to some person's experience, but... That doesn't mean just because it, th- there's not people that live that way. I mean, they're just, they're in the middle. They have some Filipino background and they have some American background. I mean, it's, everybody's different. Yeah. There's no right way. There's no one way to write a diverse character. Right. You know, and, you know, I just have my experience of like, it, it, it just, it's interesting to me that everybody thinks that I am not enough of something based on how I look. Everybody who looks at me thinks that. Do you think that is um, not unique to, but happens a lot more often with Asian people? Asian Americans, I should say. Uh, Yeah, no, it definitely does, I would say. Yeah, just Asian Americans in general, I would say that happens a lot. Like just this expectation that you have an accent or that you're not from here. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I would definitely say, actually, where we live, it's probably... That is amplified. Yeah. I mean, that would just be my perception, which is kind of bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. There's been an Asian population in Portland since before Portland was a city. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but, you know. It's not as bad here because, like, for instance, I went to junior high with this guy. He was my friend. He was African-American. And one time he pointed out his uncle to me, his, you know, his sister, his mother's brother, and he was 100% Filipino. And my friend was, he looked 100% African-American. And I mean, you could just, you just never know Yeah. over here. So nobody here, nobody, nobody really cares about, well, there are people who care, who care, but I mean, overall people are just very laid back about it. They're just, they just know there's no such thing as too much this, this risk, this ethnicity or too much or not enough because everybody's just so mixed. So that's a wrap on the first half of our conversation with author Sarah Oakler and blogger Raquel from the book Barbies. Um, come back in about a week or so, and we will have another episode for you with those two lovely guests. And in that episode, we're going to talk to you a bit about some recommendations for some good reads when you're looking to diversify your bookshelves, and also just some resources to track on these issues. So Come back then and check it out. In the meantime, be sure to visit the website at ClearEyesFullShelves.com and click on the podcast link, and you'll get information about all of the authors and issues we've discussed, more links and further reading, and also you can find out how to get a free trial of Audible by clicking on a link there on our website. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Clear Eyes Full Shelves podcast. 
Be sure to check out our book reviews, recommendations, opinion, and all-around nerdy badassery at ClearEyesFullShelves.com or on Twitter at FullShelves. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. Until next time, clear eyes, full shelves, can't lose.